I will say, much as I love the CNN, you're doing a disservice. Well, that's what they do. That is CNN. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, in Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Columbus, Ohio on 94.1 WGRN. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950. We're also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow... Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up, I've been getting some uh, very interesting reaction to my uh, to my interview yesterday with Massachusetts Institute of Technology. That's MIT, in case you don't know. MIT professor uh, professor emeritus Ted Postal regarding his analyses questioning the evidence released by the White House on April 11. To justify its unconstitutional and unauthorized and perhaps illegal under international law bombing campaign against Syria on April 6, which was itself in response to the uh, alleged Syrian chemical attack in a rebel-held province on April 4, Postal's uh, scientific reports argue that the White House claims are completely unfounded. And in fact, he says the evidence cited by the White House, even if taken at face value, offer offers no proof of who was actually responsible for that nerve agent incident. Uh, perhaps we'll discuss some of those responses on tomorrow's show. If I get some time, uh, I'll, I'll even try to open up the phone lines as well tomorrow. But but why have Postal's claims not even been covered by the U.S. media, given his long track record of, of being right on these things, even to debunk them? Why have they not been, you know, debunked by the mainstream media? We will discuss that and uh, and more concerns about the U.S. government claims against Syria uh, with independent investigative journalist Robert Perry of Consortium News shortly. Uh, but uh, very quickly here, a couple of other items. Uh, two people were killed in Arkansas on Monday night by the state of Arkansas. Two inmates received lethal injections on the very same gurney on Monday night, about three hours apart, uh, Arkansas completed the nation's first double execution since 2000. 
uh, just days after the state ended a nearly 12-year hiatus on, uh, on capital punishment there. The first inmate, Jack Jones, was executed on schedule shortly after 7 p.m., but attorneys for the uh, second uh, man, Marcel Williams, had convinced a federal judge minutes later to briefly delay his execution due to concerns about how the first one was carried out. Uh, apparently, uh, officials spent some 45 minutes trying to place an IV line into Jones' neck trying to kill him uh, before they placed it elsewhere. And uh, they argued that uh, that uh, Williams, uh, who, who weighed 400 pounds, could have faced a torturous death because of his weight. Uh, Jack Jones was seen uh, moving his lips and gulf, gulping for air, according to AP's reporter who witnessed the execution. Um, he uh, moved his lips after briefly after the midazolam was administered. That is one of the three drugs used to kill people in Arkansas, and it is the reason why the governor there, uh, Asa Hutchinson, had scheduled four double executions over an 11-day period this month uh, because the supply of midazolam was going to expire as of the end of this month. So, quick, kill them all in a hurry. Uh, besides those two executions on Monday, Arkansas put to death one other inmate last week and has one one more scheduled for uh, for Thursday of this week. Four of the others have been blocked by the courts. So um, so far, they've got three out of ten. Nice going, Arkansas. Keep up the uh, keep up the good killing. Uh, in happier news, hello Desi Doyen. <laughs> You'll cheer me up. Uh, uh, and this so. was we didn't get to talk about this yesterday on the show. Um, Coming out of the weekend, the uh, the marches for science all all over, not just all over the country, but all over the world brought out hundreds of thousands of scientists. Yes, and, they did. And their supporters, people like you who believe in that science stuff. <laughs> uh, I love the uh, there was a, a couple of signs. I You got to love when scientists go marching, when scientists go protesting. Uh, their signs were absolutely fantastic in many cases. Um, some of the favorites, uh, this one, and, and, and look how scientific these are. Uh, <laughs> this woman, uh, cost of Trump's border wall, $31.2 billion. National Institute of Health's entire 2016 budget, $31.3 billion. They cost the same, but one is far more valuable, says, uh, says this woman marching with this sign. Uh, another uh, woman uh, who looks like she was there with, uh, also a scientific-related sign, the dollars of one weekend at Mar-a-Lago equal funding for three National Institute of Health research grants for 4.5 years, providing nine-plus jobs, 22 scientific findings, and $7.4 million in local economic growth. That was all on, <laughs> all on, all one, on side. one sign. And because apparently she's a scientist... Uh, in in letters at the bottom, it says calculations and citations can be found at, <laughs> and then it lists her uh, Twitter address. We'll Vicky, see. Vicky Barch is her name. Thank you, Vicky. Well done. Leave uh, it to the scientists but to the, cite their sources. No doubt. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, the one you found, Des, uh, was perhaps the best and maybe the most chilling. Uh, this one, at the start of every disaster movie, there's a scientist being ignored. <laughs> yes, that was my favorite by far. 
That is kind of perfect. But hey, we don't learn anything. We don't learn anything from our movies. We don't learn anything from our experience. We don't learn, hey, you know, we've got all this data and all this science. Why not use it? Oh, no, that's a crazy idea. That scientist, he warned us. We should have listened. <laughs> As they always say in those movies. Well, uh, I'm happy to report that all of the broadcast uh, network news shows uh, on Saturday evening, at least, covered the March for Science as their lead story. Good for them. I mean, there was hundreds of thousands of people marching across the world. Uh, good for the uh, evening news on the networks in any event, covering that as their lead story on Saturday night. That's good. But there were a couple of outlets that even after all of these years, uh, we still seem to have been wooed by the siren song of fossil fuel funded denialism. Uh, the the uh, CNN. Hello, CNN. <laughs> CNN's New Day Saturday featured a guest panel uh, discussing the marches that included Bill Nye, the science guy, and a physicist, William Happer, who is a climate change denier. Happer was allowed to perpetuate the myth that carbon dioxide is not a harmful pollutant and that it benefits the that it actually benefits the planet. Yeah, he I said. know. Uh, he claimed incorrectly the temperatures are not rising as fast as climate models predicted. Uh, called for the cancellation of the Paris Climate Agreement because it, quote, doesn't make any scientific sense. It's just a silly thing, he said. And he went on to compare it to the Munich Agreement uh, and the uh, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain's appeasement of Hitler. Yeah, that's what he complained. I think he's with is, is he with the Heartland? Oh, no, that was the other guy with the Heartland. Here was uh, some of William Happer on uh, on CNN. You know, there's this myth that's uh, developed around carbon dioxide that it's a pollutant. But you and I both exhale carbon dioxide with every breath. So each of us emits about two pounds of carbon dioxide a day. So are we polluting the planet? Yes. Uh, Carbon dioxide is a perfectly natural gas. It's just like water vapor. It's something that plants love. They grow better with more carbon dioxide. And you can see the greening of the earth already from uh, the additional carbon dioxide mm. in the atmosphere. So at least he's admitting there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But he says it's a myth that CO2 is a pollutant. Uh, because we, we all exhale that. And of course, that's not what scientists are talking about. They're talking about the digging up and burning of sequestered carbon that the Earth has sequestered in its own processes over eons, and we're digging it up and re-releasing it into the atmosphere. We're not talking about people exhaling. That's not even a part of the calculation. But the, this notion that uh, CO2 cannot be a pollutant because we exhale it, and would we consider that a, 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 a pollutant? Well, uh, you know, as I said before, uh, this guy, uh, Happer, let's put him in a room with that non-pollutant, with only CO2, and see how long he lasts. And uh, so, you know, we yeah, we do expel about two pounds of CO2 a day. Um, uh I don't know about you, but I also urinate several times a day, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he would not like all of that urine in his uh, in his drinking water, in his food. So this idea that CO2 is not a pollutant, you know, if he was uh, a real scientist, he would understand that toxins are not measured. Uh, to toxins are measured by the amount. Right. That we did a story a couple of weeks ago about a woman who died from drinking too much water. 
Now, obviously, water is not considered a pollutant, but if you have too much of it, it becomes a problem. Right. The dose makes the poison is what a exactly. toxicologist would say. Now, he also said a couple of things that were just outright lies. He lied about the climate models. They are actually, in reality, substantially showing exactly what the models had predicted is what we're seeing now. And that's actually a bit scary because what the models are showing, we're seeing sooner than the models projected. And also he said that uh, that CO2 is good for plants, and that's true. So, you know, plants take in CO2, they put out oxygen. The problem with that idea is that too much CO2, studies have shown, actually retards the growth of plants and mm. reduces their yield. And that's really important if you need plants for food like we do. So they gave this, you know, this platform to this guy, uh, along with the Bill Nye, the science guy, and, uh, and one other woman, and I'm sorry I missed her name, from 350.org. Uh, so there was three people on this panel. Uh, two of them were uh, not deniers. One of them was. Uh, but Bill Nye, uh, his response to actually even having this guy on at all, I, I think was kind of perfect. And I will say, much as I love the CNN, you're doing a disservice by having one climate change skeptic and not 97 or 98 scientists or engineers concerned about climate change. Exactly. Yep. If you wanted to accurately tell the story, you'd have one denier and 97 or 98 scientists uh, responding to them. But that's not what they do. Uh, not on the CNN. <laughs> Apparently, uh, where denialism is uh, almost as uh, as true, as worthy of their time as uh, non-denialism. Uh, same thing, a similar story over on CBS. Uh, they covered the marches, but they also aired a segment uh, in which they featured uh, Joe Bast, this guy from uh, from the Heartland Institute, a climate denying organization funded by uh, fossil fuel industry. And just so as you know, yeah. Joe Bast is not a scientist. No, he's not. He's, uh, he's a propagandist who, who says stuff like this. Besides, he says, climate change isn't necessarily a bad thing. Cold weather kills more people than warm weather does. So on net, more people would benefit in a warmer climate. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> so not true. I mean, no, it's totally true. The Every member of the Heartland Institute should jump into a volcano because they'll totally benefit from that warmer climate. How much warmer it actually is. So, so basically, they just completely ignored what the study author said, what the study actually says in order to turn it to their own incorrect ideological goals. Heartland Institute misleading the American public? Say it ain't so. Uh, of course, they would... Uh, uh, but the fact that uh, CBS, uh, they, you know, they did note that uh, most climate scientists, the United Nations, as well as NASA, dismissed these arguments as propaganda for fossil fuels. Uh, but again, you know, they, they treated him legitimately and they did not report that uh, Heartland is funded by fossil fuel interests, including the Koch brothers and Exxon. They should have. Uh, and, and in any event, uh, so kudos to those network newscasts that did cover this uh, properly on Saturday night. But by Sunday, on all of the uh, network uh, morning Sunday morning news shows, ABC This Week, CBS Face the Nation, NBC Meet the Press, they failed to mention the March for Science at all. That according to Media Matters. Now, do you suppose if there had been hundreds of thousands of tea partiers out marching all across the country on Saturday, 
that uh, it, it would have been completely ignored on all the Sunday morning news shows? Of course not. Media Matters, of course, uh, had a study, uh, a recent study, finding that in 2016, when we needed them most, uh, the uh, network uh, news broadcast completely failed us, as well as Fox News. Uh, They decreased their total coverage of climate change by 66 percent in 2016 compared to the year before. And the year before, they were already very busy ignoring climate change. But in 2016, when we had a presidential election and could have really used their coverage, they were ignored. Uh, The the issue was completely ignored in the presidential uh, election. A real failure. Speaking of scientists being ignored, MIT professor uh, emeritus of science, technology and national security policy, Theodore Postal's analysis of the White House evidence used to justify its attack on Syria has also been ignored by the U.S. corporate media. Robert Perry of Consortium News joins me next to explain why. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yesterday on the Bradcast, I interviewed MIT Professor Emeritus of Science, Technology, and National Security Policy, Professor Theodore Postal. Uh, about his numerous analyses, I believe he's up to four now, questioning the evidence or lack thereof included in the declassified White House report, which is not an intelligence community assessment, but a White House report issued a few days after Donald Trump bombed a Syrian airbase with 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles in response to the chemical attack allegedly carried out by Bashar al-Assad in the uh, rebel-held Idlib province in Syria. That attack was said to have killed some 80 civilians and injured many others. Professor Postol, however, argues that the evidence in the White House report does not support the claims that the White House is making about the nerve agent incident, which, he says, could not possibly have been carried out in the way the White House charges. And in any event... That report, he says, includes absolutely no evidence about who actually carried out the attack. There has been just about zero discussion of Professor Postal's analyses. Despite his credentials, he was uh, formerly the science advisor to the Naval Operations Chief at the Pentagon, among other things. And despite his track record going back to, to the 90s, when he correctly identified that the Pentagon had misrepresented 
the supposed success rate of the U.S. Patriot missile system, having shot down Scud missiles fired by Iraq in the first Gulf War. In fact, the system did not work as the U.S. had initially claimed. Postal was vindicated on that, but the facts came out only after the Patriot missile system won so much praise uh, that Congress appropriated millions of dollars more to the defensive weapons system. Postal's analyses concerning the April 4 nerve agent incident in Syria have been ignored by the mainstream media, which, he noted, is curious since everyone from the New York Times on down used to cite his work. Now, he told me uh, on yesterday's show that he's heard no response from them from the New York Times or anyone else in the mainstream corporate media about his uh, reports on this. That seems curious to me. Uh, And it seemed curious to him, uh, given that we have now gone to war against a sovereign nation with no independent body confirming charges of chemical weapons used in Syria that I know of. The uh, charges were made initially by an Al-Qaeda-affiliated group in the area, and there's been no debate, much less authorization, from the U.S. Congress to go to war with a sovereign nation in the first place. Moreover... Syria is said to be uh, doing well in its civil war right now against the rebels and the terrorist groups uh, in recent months since their Russian allies have joined them in that fight. So why would they risk international outrage by launching a chemical attack against civilians when it doesn't seem to have been uh, really necessary militarily? So what really happened in that incident in uh, Khan Shakun, seen across the world in those horrific video footage uh, images cited by Donald Trump as the reason he was willing to change his years-long position supposedly against taking military action against the, uh, uh, the Assad government? I have no idea. I have no idea what really happened. I was not there. And so far, we have no independent investigative report finding anything really one way or another that is backed up by uh, evidence. Nonetheless, even Democrats appear to be in favor of Trump's attack on Syria. Congress is still not debating the issue to give legal constitutional authorization for Trump's action. And the U.S. media, right, left and center, seem to seem to think even discussing concerns about the evidence or the lack thereof issued by the White House to support the administration's claims that Assad gassed his own people is out of bounds, even as it could lead to yet another endless U.S. war in the Middle East. There is once again absolutely no discussion of the the counter narrative to the to the administration's claims. So what the hell is going on here? And why is there zero debate about it or coverage in the U.S. media even to debunk Professor Postal's claims? Joining me now is someone who has been asking some of these very same questions about the U.S. media um, and someone who comes from the U.S. media, albeit now the independent non-corporate U.S. media. Robert Perry is the creator and editor of ConsortiumNews.com, which was founded in 1995 as the first investigative news magazine on the Internet. Perry was uh, formerly an Associated Press, an Associated Press reporter who in the mid 1980s helped to expose the Iran Contra scandal, among other things. Robert Perry, sir, welcome to the broadcast. 
Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. Uh, great to have you here. I, I noted uh, today that in the uh, as I was looking around consortiumnews.com, looking at the About section, that you described the site as having been created in the 90s, quote, as a home for important, well-reported stories and a challenge to the inept but dominant mainstream news media of the day. I guess you were talking about the 90s, and you explained that you were distressed by this silliness and propaganda that had come to pervade American journalism and founded the uh, site in response to the fear, your fear, that the decline of the U.S. Uh, press corps foreshadowed disasters that would come when journalists failed to alert the public about impending dangers. Uh, before we discuss whether that seems to be happening uh, or has happened here in the Syria matter, uh, has has the dominant mainstream news media, as you regard them, become any less inept as you see it since launching uh, Consortium News back in the 90s? Oh, I'm sorry to say that they probably became more inept if you consider that the, the goal should be to uh, thoroughly, adequately inform the American people about important events. Um, what we're seeing is that uh, again and again the the mainstream press is now acting almost as if it has a duty to prevent the American people from hearing the other side of a story. When I was um, you know, young journalist, and certainly with my, my time with the AP and other places, uh, we were taught that there is almost always two sides to a story, and often more than that. Mm -hmm. uh, now it's approached that there's only one side to the story, that if the White House or the U State Department gives you a statement, that's it. And if you even question it, or if you uh, listen to other points of view, you're somehow violating a responsibility to just to, to brush aside or ignore or debunk mm -hmm. any counter argument to what the State Department or the U.S. government is saying. It's a, and there's almost a pride being taken now by the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and others in into in, in ignoring the other side of a story. Uh, and I know they sort of they sort of mix it up with this this idea that Trump has raised about alternative facts. But and there are things that are factual and, and and should be respected as such, but often in a complicated issue, um, we certainly see this in the you know the detective stories you watch on TV mm -hmm. that sometimes the initial impression uh, is not the correct one. That anyone with any intellectual honesty tries to keep parsing what's what's available and figuring out what what is believable and what isn't, uh, and not just taking the word of. Uh, some government agency, no matter how much confidence they may express in their point of view. Uh, and that's what we've seen now a recurring situation. We didn't, and we had the case of the Iraq war where you mm -hmm. might have thought, well, after that, the New York Times and the Washington Post and others will be more skeptical and more uh, self-critical about uh, the need to, to show skepticism. Uh, but that hasn't happened. Uh, in fact, it's gone, in, it's gone increasingly in the other direction. Which is which is particularly curious, I would add, um, with the rise of Donald Trump. I, you know, to some, uh, in some respect, I wouldn't be surprised. I even wasn't surprised when you know under uh, Obama they sort of accepted the government line. It was troubling coming right after George W. Bush and the Iraq fiasco. But I sort of understood it. But here you've got Donald Trump who has issued one piece of nonsense after another. Every word he utters is just, you know, ridiculous. And yet 
he sends 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles into Syria, and everyone is, uh, you know, regard him. He, today's the day he became the president. And, you know, they don't even uh, question the, the, the White House reports. I find that uh, sort of doubly curious, uh, you know, that, that they haven't even learned to know better following the Iraq war, much less all the lies they've been told by Donald Trump. Yeah, that, that is an odd one, Brad, because I've noted that, too, that that for the first, uh, you know, two months or so of his presidency, everything he said was put under a microscope and often laughed at, mm-hmm. and, and, and often rightly so. Uh, he claimed that his, his inaugural crowds were bigger than Obama's when they clearly weren't. You know, he, he's gone on about how he, he won the popular vote when he clearly lost it. And so, so there's been this attitude that this guy's not to be trusted on anything he says, yet he immediately jumps to a conclusion <laughs> uh, way before there could have been any serious intelligence ana- uh, anal- analysis mm-hmm. of it that, uh, that Assad was responsible for this, uh, this incident. Uh, and the mainstream media completely flipped around and, and just rallied to his position and, and then refused to listen to any alternative points of view on this. And there, and there are some serious points of view. There, there, much of the argument that the mainstream media has made about Assad's supposed motive, that he, he was doing this, even though it seems to make no sense to you and me, mm-hmm. but he was doing it because he was, he was demonstrating his impunity, that no one would hold him accountable. It was like a victory dance of some sort. But, but then why would he deny doing it? You know, if you're, if you're <laughs> trying to announce your impunity, right. you, wouldn't, you wouldn't then say, I didn't do it. <laughs> uh, so, so much of this doesn't make any sense, and and the uh, and the claims are being are coming from essentially Al Qaeda, uh, Al Qaeda and its propaganda network, and it's a very sophisticated propaganda network that Al Qaeda and other these radical uh, Islamic groups have going on in Syria and elsewhere. Uh, so there should be all kinds of reasons to be highly suspicious. Now, if the U.S. intelligence community had some hard evidence i.e., they intercepted a commu- an order from Assad to his people, you mm-hmm. know, drop the sarin bomb. That's one thing. But, they, but if they did have that, they would have told us. We would have heard that. But we haven't. We've heard suggestions that they have some other information that they just can't share with us. But that, sh- that should set up all kinds of alarm bells. In, in the past, as I've pointed out, when presidents are faced with similar situations, they have gone, to the, they've gone the extra mile in releasing but had been classified material. Uh, Kennedy, obviously, with the U-2 uh, surveillance uh, photos of mm-hmm. the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62. Uh, even Ronald Reagan in 83 uh, released that the United States could in- intercept Soviet gr- uh, ground-to-air commands, that, uh, because in the case of the KL- KAL-007 flight, um, it's also true that the Reagan people doctored the, <laughs> the tapes, but they, but they acknowledged that they could do this. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the sources and methods are often set aside in the, in the, the need to uh, convince the world community that the United States has the goods. In this case, there has been nothing like that, nothing. Uh, and, and there's been a reliance on this information that has been put out by al-Qaeda, uh, photographs that don't make any sense, mm-hmm. people supposedly climbing into the Sarin crater uh, with with virtually no protective gear and, and having no consequence from it. Mm-hmm. And these are things that Postal has, has pointed out and, and others. But, but the bigger issue to me has been that there has been 
no evidence presented. And this idea of saying trust us, trust us has really worn thin. Yep. At least for me it has. I, I've been around Washington since 1977, and I've been lied to a lot by the government. And so at a certain point you say, okay, uh, I'd like to trust you, but I don't. Right. Uh, it's up to you. You've got to start presenting me with, with credible evidence. But instead we've gotten into this pattern, and we saw it under Obama too, by the way, uh, where he would make uh, assertions where he's supposedly supported by the intelligence community, but they would not present their evidence. And some of it turned out to be very shaky. The, the, the previous sarin case in, in, uh, in Syria comes to mind right. in, in, in 2013, which also collapsed under, under examination, although, and even Obama has kind of at times said, yes, we never, you know, the, the intelligence community told me there was no, quote, slam-dunk evidence that, uh, blaming Assad. But then the Washington press corps, the national media, which, has, which bought into that one, too, this has continued to say that that's, that's true. I mean, there's, there's now this strange dichotomy between what is sort of established as historical fact and what Washington insiders want to believe. There are, these, oh, there are like two parallel senses of reality. There's, mm-hmm. the, there's the real reality that we've been able to sort of ferret out. People like Cy Hirsch did some work. Postal did some good work on the, in the 2013 case. And then there's what the conventional wisdom is, or the group think, and they don't they don't connect. Uh, but in the, but that has become the pattern that we have seen, and it's very dangerous. Uh, it's it's particularly dangerous now that Donald Trump has realized that hey, if I if I want to get the press off my back on something, because they were hounding him as you remember every day about so-called RussiaGate. Mm-hmm. He suddenly fires off some missiles, some of which hit the target, and some went astray apparently and killed some civilians. But um, but he he was wi- widely applauded for this. Uh, what we're seeing is a very strange situation where the the, the the national press corps is putting its hatred of Assad and its desire for regime change in Syria uh, even above its contempt. For or Donald Trump in all his lives, <laughs> which is which is a tall bar, and, and that's and that's what bothers me. That's what bothers me about about this report uh, about going to war against a sovereign nation without actually having independently verifiable evidence. You know, evidence that is checkable. That uh, you know, and and I have the same problem when it comes to the, uh, the 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 accusations against Donald Trump concerning Russia. It's it's as if you know, if the intelligence community in some fashion says, well, we can't divulge anymore because of sources and methods, but here's our conclusion. Republicans, Democrats, the U.S. media, they all go, oh, OK, well, then you I understand you can't. So we'll just go with your conclusions. You, you never mind having to prove them. Well, we end up in these endless wars. You cite Robert Perry in your uh, article uh, last week, headline, Did Al-Qaeda fool the White House again. You cite one smug CNN commentator, that's your quote, who pontificated that we all know what happened in 2013. And that refers back to the 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 alleged sarin attack that year said to have killed hundreds near Damascus, also attributed to the Assad government. Again, I don't know if it happened or not uh, or how it happened or who was responsible for it. But at least at that time, uh, the Obama administration said, "Okay, 
Let's leave this to Congress then. I'd like to uh, respond militarily to Syria, but let's let Congress uh, decide whether to give me authorization or not as per the Constitution. They never did, by the way. They never even debated it, despite their, their you know, criticism of, uh, of Obama's policies in Syria. Uh, they did not step up. But we get this sort of this body of information that is taken for granted. CNN says, oh, we all know what happened in 2013. Uh, and it sort of builds on itself uh, to the point where I think we, it, it's too easy to go to war, um, especially with this evidence that has not ever actually been independently verified right and, and it's not even a problem we we supposedly look for independent sourcing uh even like the u.n now has become so um uh, cowed by the pressures from the west uh its investigators are not at this point even being very uh, honest themselves there's a lot of careerism that comes into this there's been a very ugly history if you go back especially to the bush years mm-hmm. of of purging um, these various agencies, uh, like the Chemical Weapons uh, Program and uh, Committee itself, of leadership that had uh, somehow challenged U.S. positions. So what you often end up with, even with U.N. investigations, are these really bizarre um, uh, uh, sort of phony investigations, uh, which sort of come to conclusions that the West wants. there was, a, there was an interesting one, this whole issue of the chlorine attacks, which has been sort of the fallback position regarding mm-hmm. Syria, even when the sarin stuff has sort of has, has collapsed as, 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 a, as an allega- set of allegations against the Syrian government. Then they feel, well, there's been these chlorine attacks. But the, the problem with, these, with the, the chlorine attacks even make less sense uh, because chlorine doesn't really kill anybody, I mean, unless you happen to be caught in a, in a conv- confined space when one of these things goes off. But you're probably going to be killed by by the explosion anyway at that point. But 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 here you have this. There wasn't well, one of the cases that the UN investigated, mm-hmm. which was again pushed by Al Qaeda and its propaganda agents, um, who soft, often pose as civil defense people. But they but they were claiming there was this clar- this chlorine attack on a, on a, in, a village in in 2014. They said they knew it because. The, the chlorine was in a barrel bomb, and when chlorine is in a barrel bomb, it makes a different sound than other barrel bombs. Uh, and that was taken down sort of straight-facedly by the U.N. But then, uh, then uh, seven different uh, eyewitnesses came forward from the town and got through to the U.N. people and said the whole thing was staged. Uh, we were told to leave our homes um, because there was going to be this chlorine attack. The attack never happened. Um, See, 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 but but then it was mm-hmm. alleged that it happened. So so the UN had evidence, had eyewitness evidence that the Al Qaeda people were staging these chemical attacks. Uh, but then the UN oh. said, well, there are a couple others that with, no one came forward to say they were staged, so we're going to believe them. Uh, so you have a, you have here a problem when 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 you have some a group like Al Qaeda, which is very willing to put obviously civilian innocent life at, at, at risk and, and destroy it, um, and they would do so f- to advance their, their cause, mm-hmm. which they're, since they're extremists. So you can understand how they might have decided to pull something like this off. Now, that's not to say that I know that that happened, but there are serious questions, as, as uh, Professor Postol has pointed out, about not only the logic, but the, the evidence 
that has been presented in connection with the April 4 incident. It, now, that's a, and that, that would demand that a serious independent news media that we're supposed to have in the United States, but don't, would ask those questions and not simply make fun of people mm-hmm. who, who don't just buy in and get in lockstep with whatever the U.S. government's telling them. Not just make fun, uh, but, but attack. I mean, I've had some very interesting responses since my interview yesterday with Professor Postal. Um, and, uh, well, uh, well, let's, we'll talk about a little bit more because I have uh, some questions. I'm not sure who to trust. Uh, you know, if we can't trust the, the media, we can't trust the UN. We'll get to that in a minute. But on this, on the, the recent chemical incident, uh, whatever it was on April 4, uh, you, you note in your report that the White House photo released late last week showing the president and a dozen senior advisors monitoring the April 6 missile strike from a room at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida, uh, which is obviously set up to look like the White House Situation Room. Uh, you, you write that that was noteworthy in that neither CIA Director Monk, Mike Pompeo nor Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats was in the frame of that photograph. Why in particular do you find that noteworthy in this particular case? Well, and it, and it also goes to this the fact that the White House then issued this this so-called intelligence assessment on its own without mm-hmm. the imprimatur of, of the intelligence community itself. Mm-hmm. Now, what, and what I've been told from inside the intelligence community and what you know, others, like some of the ex-CIA people that I deal with a lot, mm-hmm. uh, what they've been hearing as well from their former colleagues um, is that there was, there was a great deal of dissent against this. This was not something that the, the analysts rolled over on. And certainly not in the time frame that that uh, President uh, Trump was operating in. He declared that he knew who was behind this within a few hours. Right. And 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 it became that then everyone else followed in, and the New York Times led their paper with you know the U.S. says this was Assad. And 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 so the the time frame for the agency and other analysts to to have gone through all the evidence unless they had something that was a unless they had something that was entirely definitive which i suppose is possible but they haven't a mentioned sl- that a slam dunk that, robert perry they'd, they'd have to have a slam dunk piece of evidence <laughs> right? uh, like assad giving the order the intercept something mm-hmm. like that which they have not said they have so you had this problem where the it appears that the, that there was dissent within the agency uh... that pompeo initially would not go along although he was then sent out after the after my article. Um, mm-hmm. He was sent out to give a talk to some think tank in Washington, and during the Q and A, obviously he was going to be asked about Syria, and he said, "Oh yes, I looked the president in the eye and I said that 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 we have it, you know, so forth." He had he, he described this dramatic meeting, which I'm told was just completely made up. Mm. It was that he that he's but was in a position that he had to say it because once the president comes down to with a with a conclusion. And if you're the director of central intelligence and you want to differ with that, you basically have to resign. Right. And Pompeo didn't want to resign. So you have this problem where, where the, all, the, all the careerism of Washington sort of gets into sort of a lockstep when you have one of these situations. And instead of letting the analysts pursue the different possibilities, collect serious evidence. And even the case of Obama and the, and the so-called red line situation in August of uh, 2013, mm-hmm. they didn't do anything for nine days. Uh, it, it wasn't until it was the, the, the attack happened on 
August 21st, and it wasn't until August 30th that they started coming out and saying that Assad really did it. But even then, uh, it's clear that, this, that the intelligence community was blocking, and they had to, they had to sort of do another one of these White House situ, uh, intelligence assessments, not one from the community. So you had this, so that, and, and, what, and also what happened there wasn't just that Obama tossed it to the, the Congress, mm-hmm. which he, he did, but, that, but the, the problem was he was being told by his intelligence community that they did not have the evidence on Assad. The British intelligence community told, was saying the same thing based on their analysis of the sarin, which they had obtained. So, so he knew that there wasn't good foundation for going into war again. Now, Obama, to his discredit, then refused to sort of clear up the record, and I've been very critical of him mm-hmm. for not laying out whatever the conclusions were. You know, whatever, there, there's no reason that this stuff is, is kept hidden for years. And, and frankly, I've spent a lot of time trying to pry loose secrets from the Reagan years, or even before that. But, you know, and, they, and, and the idea that these things become public after you know, 30 years or something isn't true. You have to sort of fight tooth and nail to get some of the stuff declassified from 40, 50 years ago. Right. So, 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 so these things may just keep be, remain secret for indefinitely, at least our lifetimes. And, and so it's really wrong. I mean, there's a, there's a, there should be a demand here. And, and, the, and the mainstream press, the American press should be leading it, that there should be as much transparency as possible when it comes to these issues of war and peace. And especially now that we've, we're now escalating the situation into a possible nuclear confrontation with Russia, since Russia's active in Syria, and now apparently uh, uh, Trump has reversed himself and is, is thinking about setting up no-fly zones and other things, which would require shooting down the planes operating over, over Syria, which include Russian planes. Russian planes, planes yeah. So, uh, so the idea that we could get, could get into a shooting war with Russia, but that our leadership will not will not explain what the evidence is, and the so-called independent news media will not demand that the government explain what the evidence is. This is a shocking shocking situation. The New York Times had a piece the other day where they sent someone to Moscow, uh, I guess for the purpose of making fun of the Russians, And, and the guy came back with the story saying, ha ha, you know, it's almost like going into a world of alternative facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Russia, they're talking about all these different possibilities on Syria when we all know it was done by Assad. I mean, I'm not sure the, the reporter understood how, how weird that was. Well, it wasn't that weird. That, there, there, that there's, more, there's more debate about what's going on in Russia than there is in the United States. And it's not weird at all to, to him because, as you say, Robert Perry, it is just taken for granted that the official storyline is the official storyline. No question about it. And and yet I'm, I'm left scratching my head asking why. You know, with all of these concerns that I've gone through, that you've gone through, uh, neither you nor I know what actually happened. And frankly, it could have happened exactly as it has been uh, told in that official narrative. But there is no discussion, uh, none of the counter narrative. We, we played, uh, uh, and it's not just U.S. media, it's really Western media. We, we played a, a clip on the show yesterday, uh, former British ambassador to Syria, Robert Ford, on BBC News, actually questioning the narrative. That was nice to see, but, I mean, very little of it anywhere else to, to, to be found. So, 
Robert Perry, in the minute or two we have left here, uh, you came out of that uh, mainstream corporate media. Why? What's the why is there no counter narrative discussion at all in the uh, corporate media, even to debunk, for example, uh, the work like Professor Postal? Why aren't they, you know, if it's not true, why aren't they putting it up there and showing how Postal got it all wrong? What explains this? Well, I think what explains it is that there's a desire to, first of all, be considered patriotic and supporting the U.S. in these um, in these foreign situations. Uh, there's a tremendous downside to your career if uh, if you ask too many questions. I even saw that back in the 80s. It was always a struggle to get our the stories that became Iran-Contra out because mm-hmm. uh, there was a lot of resistance from my senior people at the Associated Press, some of whom were sort of World War II veteran types, and they didn't want to see their journalists uh, undermining President Reagan, who they Mm -hmm. liked a lot. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain amount of that, uh, just careerism. And and, and journalists, uh, like most bureaucrats, uh, don't want to lose their jobs. Uh, And so, but you've also had this other attitude, which is contempt for this, any kind of alternative explanation of facts. And, and, there was this view now that there's only one side to a story. There was yeah. a, just a real quick thing. There was a there was a good documentary done about this the so-called Magnitsky case, which is a sort of a fundamental thing to the whole new Cold War. This guy Magnitsky, who was supposedly a lawyer, but he actually was an accountant who was who died in a in a Russian prison, uh, supposedly because he whistle blew on on some scandal. There, there was a documentarian that did a he went in there trying to do a pro Magnitsky. Uh, uh, documentary and, and then learned there were all these problems with the story that had been accepted in the West. And he so he did this really interesting documentary, tried to have it, he was supposed to be shown at the European Parliament in Brussels, and they barred it. They barred it because it didn't fit with the narrative that they wanted. Uh, and so here we have in the West this ad, almost an attitude of, of, of that you're doing the right thing when you shut down mm. these alternative storylines, because they're considered propaganda or something, fake news. Right. There's all this stuff now that's being thrown at, out about this, but it really means that you don't get to hear the other side of a story, and often the facts can be viewed differently. Even if one agrees on the facts, we often can see them differently, but that's not being allowed anymore, and anyone who tries to do it runs a grave risk of losing their career. Last question for you, Robert Perry, uh, since you brought this up earlier, if uh, if if we can't uh, trust the U.S. media, obviously they're not doing their job um, or you suggest we can't trust the U.N., uh, who can we believe? How do we find our way out of this quagmire when it comes to a question, questions of war and peace like this uh, in Syria? Uh, what are we to believe? Who can we turn to uh, to to understand what's actually going on, uh, particularly if the media is not going to do their job? Uh, their main core mission, I believe, is to educate the electorate. Uh, who do we turn to, Robert Perry? Well, I mean, it's a tough one. Obviously, there are many, many problems with the Internet, and I'm not, I'm not going to defend the Internet, even though I've been working at it for 20-some years now. But that you, you can find some reliable uh, sources of information on the Internet uh, that present conflicting points of view on some of these topics. Now, you have to be careful, obviously, but it's certainly true that you cannot simply say, I read the New York Times and I know what's going on anymore. I mean, not sure, I'm not sure you ever could, but 
it's certainly not true today. And I think anyone who thinks that is is making a grave mistake in terms of their ability to understand the world around them. Uh, and I think, but I think you have to sort of try to get diverse sources of information, even when some of those in, those sources are being attacked from by the mainstream. You have to make judgments on your own whether 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 this is solid stuff, if it's well documented, if it's well reported, uh, and, and then entrust your, your own judgment, not the not the judgment of the people that you see on CNN or MSNBC. Robert Perry uh, is the founder of one of those uh, news sources, one of those independent investigative news sources, ConsortiumNews.com, their tagline, independent investigative journalism since 1995. And yes, they are still at it. So thank you for that, Robert. You can also find him on the Twitters at Consortium News. Robert Perry, great speaking with you again. Uh, Hope to do it again soon. Thanks, Brad. All right, a quick break, and we're back with uh, some breaking news that has come in while I've been talking to Robert Perry here. Uh, I'll check it out during the break. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Everywhere around the world, they come to America. Remember when they used to play that song at Fourth of July celebrations, Des? Oh yes. They don't play that so much anymore for no, some reason. I so don't understand. Say. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Here's that breaking news I mentioned. A federal judge has blocked the Trump administration from enforcing a threat to take away funds from so-called sanctuary cities. The latest blow from the federal judiciary to President Donald Trump's immigration agenda, reports CNN. A ruling delivered on um, on, thir- on, uh, on Tuesday... Judge William H. Oreck sided with Santa Clara, the city of San Francisco, and other cities who argued that a threat to take away federal funds from cities that do not cooperate with some federal immigration enforcement could be unconstitutional. It's a uh, Apparently it is a nationwide injunction, and Judge Oreck has blocked the government from enforcing this key portion of Trump's January executive order, on immigration. Oh, he's going to be mad. <laughs> he's going to be mad. Uh, that had ordered the uh, Department of Homeland Security and the Justice Department to block cities who do not cooperate with federal immigration enforcement from receiving federal funds. Uh, Oryx ruling does not find the policy unconstitutional, uh, but he did find that counties and cities that challenged the law, it's actually not a law, it's an executive order, CNN, uh, that they uh, demonstrated they could face immediate irreparable harm if the policy were allowed to be put in place and that their constitutional challenge uh, could succeed once the case is fully heard. Uh, you know, threats to 
They call so these so-called sanctuary cities, which is really a term that seems to have been invented, frankly, by Fox News and Bill O'Reilly. These are cities that don't have local police arrest people for being undocumented, which, you you know, would they would argue uh, they do argue would lead to a crime spike against immigrants because criminals would figure out that, uh, you know, immigrants are too afraid to call the police. Uh, So, you know, go ahead and attack immigrants, mug them, rape them, whatever. They won't call the police for fear of being deported, which is why these cities in the first place say, all right, federal government, you can do your work. We'll do ours to fight crime, to fight local crime. In any case, uh, these threats to defund defund sanctuary cities uh, have been a, a key piece of Trump's immigration agenda Uh, And uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions had sent letters last week to nine cities requiring them to verify they are compliant with a piece of U.S. law mentioned in the executive order as a precondition of their receiving law enforcement grants that they applied for. But uh, that precondition, as CNN notes, was actually put in place by the Obama administration. And mayors have said uh, that that piece of law, that particular piece of what actually is a law, is something that they are already complying with. Now, uh, Ernie Canning, our uh, legal analyst at Bradblog.com, also texts me uh, as all of this is breaking to say, astounding, Judge Oreck's decision reveals that the Department of Justice did not respond to to, uh, San Francisco and Santa Clara County's argument that Trump's order to strip sanctuary cities of federal funds violated the 10th Amendment prohibition against commandeering local jurisdictions. Uh, and this is something, you know, the 10th Amendment, these 10thers have said, you know, well, we this is up to local, uh, you know, state law. You can't have the federal government coming in and making these rules. They didn't even apparently respond to that argument. Uh, The uh, judge found the Constitution vests the spending powers in Congress, not the president. So the order cannot constitutionally place new conditions on federal funds. Ernie Canning adds, uh, so a court has once again shot down Trump's and Sessions executive overreach. Uh, This also comes on the same day that Donald Trump has apparently folded like the paper tiger that he is in regard to a funding for his wall, at least before Friday, when the uh, federal government must uh, by midnight on Friday, when the federal government must come up with a new budget or face a shutdown. Trump had been saying that uh, he, he you know, would not allow a new budget bill if it didn't have funding for his wall that Mexico was supposed to pay for in the first place. He has backed off on that. He has completely folded. Uh, just as they did on health care, he pulled that. He has apparently now pulled the demand for funding of his border wall. Well, so much for the great negotiator. We already knew he was a crappy president, but he was supposed to be a tough negotiator. Turns out he's not much more than a paper tiger. Who knew? My thanks to Desi Doyen, my producer today, to Robert Perry of Consortium News, my guest today, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can, as ever, download it for free at bradblog.com. My great thanks to those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com donate to help us continue to do what we try to do here every day. 
You can also drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find, follow, and share us far and wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. That's it. We'll be back with you again tomorrow. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.